titles this morning. Now back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to meet you there in just a few moments. I just want to recap and reset for those of you who are new. We're in this ongoing series of sermons from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've called this Stranger Things, Life in the Right Side Up. And if you've seen the Netflix show Stranger Things, you probably recognize uh, our setup here. and You probably recognize the slightly modified title. The main idea, the reason that we chose that title is that the main idea behind this sermon series is that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contends that this world in which we live is a dark echo of the world that God originally created. It has been twisted and it has been wrung by sin and it is, well, the expression that we're using is that it is upside down in comparison to the world that God originally created. Now, in the future, Jesus is going to return to the earth and he's going to turn the world right side up again. But for now... We have been invited to join Jesus in a conspiracy to undermine the systems of evil that dominate this upside-down world. And we've been invited to join him by becoming his disciples, by learning from him how to live right-side-up in an upside-down world. And if I could just summarize what Jesus has said in chapter 5 about people who are learning to live right-side-up, it's this. Right-side-up people are being so deeply transformed by God's grace that they're increasingly committed to promoting the well-being of everyone they deal with. And as Dustin helped us see last week, even their enemies. That's what it means to live right-side-up, to be deeply committed as a result of God's grace working deeply in your heart, to be deeply committed to the well-being of everyone that you encounter, even your enemies. Well, in chapter 6 now, Jesus is going to shift gears a little bit. And he's, going to, he's going to warn us in chapter 6 about two seductions that Satan uses to short-circuit the kind of deep heart-level transformation that Jesus is describing in the life of of a disciple. Now, we're only going to have time to look today at the first seduction. We'll look at the next one uh, next week. The first one is described in the first 19 verses of chapter 6, and I want to just call it the seduction of religious applause. Look at verse 1, Matthew chapter 6. I should also tell you, uh, I'm not going to have time to go into all 19 verses in detail today, and the reason is I, I, want you, I think it's really more important today that you get the big picture of what Jesus is saying in these verses. So, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Uh, Let me stop there, because I think in a secular culture like ours, it's probably shocking to those of you who might not be terribly familiar with with the culture of first century Judaism, Probably shocking to think that anyone would actually desire to be known for how religious they are. That's not exactly what most people aspire to today. In fact, I think many people would argue that the problem with the world today is religion. But it would be fair to say that being known for being religious in first century Judaism would have been the equivalent of being known as a rock star or a star athlete or a famous actor in today's culture. Rising to the top of religion got you the best seats in the restaurant. It could make you rich. It could make you powerful. 
Now, that's not the culture that we live in today. But I think we can all acknowledge that acclaim, accolades, honor, applause from people, in whatever context of life you live in, I think we can all identify with the power of that and the seductiveness of that. And the human heart is riddled with such a sense of inadequacy and so desperate for acceptance and affirmation that applause and recognition and honor from others we respect in any context feels fabulous. In fact, so much so that it can become addictive. Now, let me just, here's an example from the music industry. And I'm just going to read a few of the lyrics from a pop song and I'll see if you know the name of it and, and who sings it. And here, here's, here's the lyrics. Okay. Talking about the power, the seductive power of applause. I live for the applause, applause, applause. I live for the applause, applause. Live for the applause, clause. Live for the way that you cheer and scream for me. The applause, the applause, the applause. Give me that thing I love. Put your hands up, make them touch, touch. Give me that thing that I love. Put your hands up, make them touch, touch. Anybody recognize that song? Anybody recognize it? Yeah? It's applause. That's the name of the song. By Lady Gaga. Whatever you think of the song, whatever you think of Lady Gaga, you can at least appreciate that she's honest about the power of applause and approval and honor in her life. She lives for it. And here's the thing. Like, it's true. Whatever context you seek applause in, whether it's in your schoolwork or your parenting or your art or your business, the thing that is so seductive about it is that applause can become an end in and of itself like in any context of life. And in fact, Jesus gives three examples of the seductiveness of applause that are drawn from a religious context in these 19 verses. Look at verse 2. So when you give to the needy, he's talking about giving, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Believe it or not, people actually did that. Like they would announce their giving with trumpets. People don't do that today, do they? Like they never announce like a press conference, to announce their charitable giving, do they? Like, they don't do that, do they? People don't give so that they can have their name be put up on the side of a building, do they? They don't do, yeah, they do do that, don't they? So you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Skip down to verse 5. Now he's going to talk about prayer. And when you pray, he says, do not be like the hypocrites, Underline that word or highlight that word hypocrite. It says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And then finally, uh, as it relates to the ascetic practice of fasting, skip down to verse 16. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the as the word again, hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, in each of those cases that Jesus is describing, these people do these religious activities. Now, be very careful. Listen closely. They do these religious activities in order to be seen by others. Like they're doing it for the applause. They're seeking it. Applause had become the end. And giving and prayer and fasting had simply become the means to the end. Now, here's why I think it's important that you pay very close attention to the words, in order to be seen. 
Because Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to give or pray or fast or do anything good for people and be seen. He's not saying it's wrong to to do it and be seen. He's not even saying it's wrong to applaud someone who does something good for someone else. He's not saying it's wrong to be applauded or recognized for something good you do. The issue that Jesus is concerned about is doing religious things for the applause, doing it to be seen, seeking the applause, doing the good thing as simply a means to an end. That's what Jesus is concerned about. And I tell you that because I, I've sat in, um, I've, I've sat in, in like uh, concerts or church services or whatever where uh, somebody is singing a song, a solo, and then the congregation starts to applause, uh, applaud. And the person like singing kind of knows this. And so they get, they get frantic that they're breaking some law by having people applaud. And so they start going, no, 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 like that. And it's, that's, they don't need to do that. It's not wrong for people to applaud. It's wrong for you to do it for the applause. That's the distinction here. And Jesus is warning us about that because while applause can seduce you in, uh, to living for it in any context of life, it is exceptionally destructive in a spiritual context. And why do I say that? Well, let me show you. Let's, I want to look now. Let's look at the destructiveness of uh, religious applause. The destructiveness of religious applause. You may have noticed that in each of those three illustrations that Jesus gave us about giving prayer and fasting, in each of those three illustrations, Jesus used the word hypocrites. Used it in verses 2, verses, verse 5, and verse 16. Repeated the word. To understand why seeking applause is so destructive in a spiritual context, you need to know a little bit about this word, uh, hypocrites. Uh, the word Jesus uses is uh, the Greek word hypocrites. It was a theatrical word which meant actor in classical Greek language, like a stage actor. And Jesus co-ops this world from the theater, and he uses it to describe people who have fallen prey to the seduction of religious applause. Now, please understand something. The way Jesus uses this word is very different than the way we use the word hypocrite today. We use it incorrectly. How do people use it today? Well, it's usually used to describe someone who doesn't, what? Bingo. Practice what they preach. So a pastor gets caught having an affair, he's a hypocrite. Uh, a Baptist woman publicly says she doesn't believe in drinking, but actually she's found to enjoy a glass of wine privately, she's a hypocrite. That's how we would use it. Many years ago, I interviewed with a church that had Mennonite roots. And for those of you who may not know, Mennonites are religious pacifists. What was fascinating is that almost every guy on the board carried a gun or hunted. And in our culture, that would be called hypocrisy. But that's not how Jesus uses the word. That's not what Jesus means. In part because everyone would be a hypocrite. None of us perfectly practice what we preach. I mean, that's true of lawyers who want to uphold the law and yet they speed when they drive, let's say. Um, it's true of any occupation, any person, any individual. We're all if that's what hypocrite means, not practicing what you preach, we're all hypocrites. But that's not what it means. 
Because if it did, it would be meaningless. Jesus used the word to communicate um, the distinction between Christianity and religion and, and how people often fall prey to the seduction of religious applause. And here's, here's what I mean. Uh, no matter what you've been taught in the past, no matter what you think you understand about Christianity, no matter what people have told you in the past about Christianity, the emphasis of Christianity is on the human heart. It is not on behavior. Now, that's a surprise to a lot of you, I know, because you were told, given this long list of things that you were supposed to do or not do, and that is, so is, you, know, you were like, well, it's all about behavior. It's not. The emphasis of Christianity is on the human heart. Because who you are as a person is defined by your heart. And Christianity says that the problem with humanity isn't just external behavior. It's not just a matter of changing a person's behavior. It's not just an educational program or a governmental program problem or a socioeconomic problem. The problem with humanity is a heart problem. We've all been wrung, twisted, distorted by sin. And as a result... We are all slaves to self. We we can't live right-side-up lives committed to the well-being of everyone else we meet because we're consumed with ourselves and our own well-being at all costs. And just a little example is Friday night, Amy and I uh, rented a movie, and there was this scene in which this guy is telling this woman how much he loves her. And, oh, I... My goodness, you could, you could tell that the uh, people who made the movie, like this is, this is like the most romantic scene ever. They, I mean, they've got beautiful music. The setting is perfect. And the guy looks straight into, the, uh, into this girl's eyes. And again, you could tell that the writers, like this is like what they've written, they think is like the ultimate, it's the pinnacle of, of communicating love. And here's what he says to her. He says, I love who I am when I am with you, and I don't want that to change. And I wanted to yell at the screen and say, run, sweetheart. He doesn't love you. He loves him. He loves what you do for him. And if you ever stop doing that for him, he won't be around. And you see, by the way, I didn't yell that at the screen because my family hates it when I do stuff like that. And so out of love for my wife, I didn't do it. But it's a perfect example of the self-centeredness of the human heart, even in our communication of love for someone else, what we're really saying is, I love what you do for me. (laughs) That's the self-centeredness of the human heart. And this is why Christianity focuses on the heart, not on behavior. The heart has to have its fundamental structure, its fundamental orientation changed from consumed with self to love for God and love for people, or else nothing in this upside-down world really changes. But you see, when we practice Christian spirituality for applause, we short-circuit the work that Christ wants to do on our heart. We short-circuit that work into a merely religious emphasis on behavior. And that actually ends up strengthening the roots of selfishness in a person's heart. And let me just show you what I mean. Many of you have heard me say this before, but that's okay because repetition is one of the keys to learning. (laughs) Religion says this. Religion says believe in the God or the idea behind our religion and then obey the code of conduct in our religion 
and you'll be saved. Okay, let me ask you, what's the purpose for my obedience in religion? So, for instance, let's say that the code of conduct in that religion says give money to the poor. What's my motivation in religion for giving money to the poor? Is it out of concern for the poor? Well, maybe some, but mostly it's out of concern for me. I want to be saved, and if I'm going to be saved, I have to do this. You see? It doesn't change the fundamental orientation of the heart. Religion doesn't. It's, it's still consumed with self. Even people who claim not to be religious fall prey to the same thing. I was listening to a podcast this past week with a person who claimed to be a secular humanist. Okay, so let's use humanism. Here's how the American Humanist Association defines humanism. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but let me, I'll, I'll read it to you. They say this, Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. Okay, that's what they say humanism is. Okay, if you're a humanist, Follow the equation. You, still, you have to believe that. That's their doctrine. If I showed up at a meeting of secular humanists and said, I don't believe that statement, what would they say to me? They'd say, well, you can't be a secular humanist then. So that's a belief. Plus, if you listen carefully, you have to obey to be one of them. Well, obey what? Well, they said it. You have to lead an ethical life. Now, how they define an ethical life without an objective transcendent truth is a logical conundrum that we don't have time to talk about today. We'll save that for another day. But let's say that an ethical life includes, in humanism, give money to the poor. I would imagine that it probably does. If I'm a humanist, why am I giving to the poor? Look at the equation. Believe plus obey equals save. If I don't give to the poor, I lose my status as a humanist. Not to mention how my other humanist friends will look at me. So I'm still, even though I wouldn't say that I'm religious, I'm still motivated out of a concern for me. It's about me. And so here's what's happening. My behavior, my external behavior is masquerading as love for God and love for people. But it's really only about me. And so you can see why this word hypocrite was the perfect word for Jesus to use to describe people who fall prey to the seduction of religious applause. They were acting. They were acting like people whose hearts had been changed. They were acting as if the fundamental orientation of their heart had been changed. They were acting as if they loved God and were deeply committed to the well-being of others, but they were still only doing these things for the honor, for the respect, for the applause that it got them. You see, religious applause is extremely seductive, but it's also profoundly dangerous to a person who wants to learn to live right side up from Jesus, because the behavior that looks like it's being done for other people's well-being is only strengthening the roots of selfishness in my heart by the applause that it receives. You see that? So then what's the, what's the remedy 
to the seductiveness of religious applause. Because look, if, if, if we can all acknowledge that, yeah, man, it is powerful. <laughs> getting applauded by people, you know, whatever, whatever context of life you're in, getting applauded by people, getting honored, all that stuff. Oh, man, that is so powerful. What's the remedy? And specifically, specifically within a religious context, what's the remedy? What can, what can break the grip that needing people's approve and applause has on me that is short-circuiting the deep heart transformation that the gospel wants to do in my life? Well, again, <clears throat> we don't have time to look in detail at all of these verses. We're, we're going to save them for another time out of interest in seeing the bigger picture here. I want you to look at verse 3, and I want you to pay attention uh, for those of you who are going to look up on the screen, uh, I want you to pay attention to the words that I have underlined. Verse 3. <clears throat> but when you give to the needy, so he's going back, same illustration, right, that he was using earlier. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Skip down to verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And skip again to verse 17. But when you fast, put oil on your head and girl, wash your face. That's a a joke. Anyway, uh, Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, there is this fascinating interplay in all, th- in all three of those passages between the word father and the words secret and unseen. The word that Jesus uses for father is the Aramaic word Abba, which was a Uh, or Abba, which was a a term that little children, as well as older children and adults, uh, would use to refer to their fathers. Now, in the Old Testament, God was often referred to as a father, but but it was always in a national context. He was always referred to the father of the nation of Israel. This is actually the first time in the Bible that he's referred to as father in such intimate terms with people, with people as individuals, like not nationally, just with individual people. It's a very intimate, very intimate term that Jesus is using here. It would have been shocking to people to hear it. And he keeps saying, he keeps saying, you know, do this for your father in secret because he sees it in secret. Uh, I have this memory from many years ago when my sons were very young. We were living in a small house in a suburb outside of Dallas and... Uh, I was out in the front yard mowing the yard in the early evening. By the way, uh, that's the go-to time for mowing in Dallas because in the summertime during the day, it is way too hot to mow, so you mow in the evening. The kids were inside. Uh, They were bathed, and they were in their pajamas. But all they wanted to do was watch me. Like They were consumed with that. And as I mowed back and forth past the windows of the house, they would run from window to window just to catch a glimpse of me. And every time I, every time I walked by, every time I waved at them or smiled at them or made a funny face at them, 
Well, those of you who are dads, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it just thrilled them. My attention, my love, my enjoyment of them was all that mattered to them. They were consumed with that. That changed, of course, around middle school. (laughs) But it's that kind of relationship that is in view here. A child's relationship with a loving father whose love and attention and approval eclipses everything and everyone else. Like, I, I don't remember. There might have been a bunch of other people outside in the neighborhood that evening, but my kids didn't care about other people and about getting attention from anyone else. They weren't looking for smiles or waves or funny faces from neighbors because none of them were their father. And it's, it's that kind of relationship with God the Father that is the remedy for the seductiveness of applause in any context, but certainly in a religious context. It's the only thing that breaks the bond of the addiction to the approval of other people. Jesus uses this term father to convey a never-before-heard-of intimacy with God, the kind in which a sinful person could actually be intimate with a holy God. But the only way that kind of relationship can be had with God, by the way, is by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ's life and death on a Roman cross. And I want to just go back to something. I said earlier that religion says that you have to what? It says you have to believe plus obey, and then you're saved. Well, Christianity preaches a very different message. It looks the same kind of on the surface, but it's actually very different. Here's what Christianity says. Christianity says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saved. Do you see the difference? It's not believe plus obey, and you're saved. That's that's religion. Christianity says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he said he was. Believe in his perfect obedience to God. Believe that his death on the cross could forgive your sins. And then by grace, through your faith in him, you are saved. Now, let me ask you something. In that equation, in Christianity, what's my motivation to, well, let's say, give to the poor if I believe in Christ? What's my motivation? Well, if you look at it closely, I don't have to worry about being saved. That's already been dealt with by by my belief in Christ. You see, my performance doesn't have anything to do with being saved. It's my belief in Jesus Christ and his performance that rescues me. I don't lose my status as a Christian if I don't give to the poor. Like God doesn't hate me. I'm not kicked off the team. Nothing about my performance affects my relationship with God. It's all about Jesus' performance. That's, by the way, why it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the good news of you and your behavior. And that's, by the way, why at Christmas time we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ and not yours, because it's not about you. It's all about Jesus, you see. So my, what's my motivation in Christianity? If it's not fear, if it's not, if it's not that I'm going to get kicked out, if it's not self-preservation... It's not the approval of others. What's my motivation in Christianity? (laughs) Well, my motivation is that I love my father. And I love my neighbor. And here's what I want you to understand. Only grace 
Only the grace that's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Only grace frees us from the slavery to self that lurks in the midst of religion and morality. Only grace. Only knowing that God the Father loved me so much that he sent his only son to do what I could not do, live a perfect life, and then to die on a cross for me. Only that grace penetrates deeply enough to transform the human heart in such a way that it frees us to love other people rather than love myself and myself only. Only grace can do that, you see. Only grace changes the fundamental orientation of the human heart. Now, I, I, you know, I want to I end here by saying something to two specific groups of people that are here today. Because we've been talking now, you know, we've talked about the seductiveness of, of applause, specifically religious applause. We've talked about the destructiveness of it. And then we've talked about this remedy, the remedy being grace. I want to speak to two groups of people. First, for those of you who have experienced God's grace. You know God's grace. You've accepted God's grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. Can we just acknowledge that even though we've accepted God's grace, there's still a part of each of us that longs for the approval and the applause of people. Can we just acknowledge that? Jesus keeps telling us here to practice the discipline of secrecy. Practice living for the applause of one. Because even though we've received this grace and experienced it, one of the things that helps us to practice experiencing um, the applause of the Father and, and just the joy of pleasing the Father is practicing a spiritual discipline called secrecy. And what that just simply means is when it's possible Practice your spirituality anonymously. Like don't use prayer or Bible study or giving or any other spiritual discipline as a way to signal your spiritual maturity and to impress others. Drop all of the spiritual jargon and Christianese you speak, which, like to borrow a phrase from our culture, amounts to virtue signaling. (laughs) Like saying stuff to let other people know how deeply spiritual you are. Like, you know telling people that you covet their prayers or that you're praying for a hedge of protection because you are a prayer warrior and have a blessed day. Drop all of that spiritual jargon because all it is is virtue signaling. That's it. People sometimes get confused here at City Church because we have, I mean, it's a policy. We don't use that kind of code language on stage. Mainly because not only does it intimidate other people, but it also tends to make you think that you are way more mature than you really are. Someone, someone once said that if you ever met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think of them as humble. You'd just notice that they were incredibly interested in you. And you see, that's, how spiritual, that's, how, that's what spirituality should look like. A person who's been so transformed internally by God's grace that their humility is so natural, it's not even noticed, nor is it being called attention to. That's what your spirituality is supposed to be like. It's not a tool for your praise and honor or position. So live for an audience of one, your father. Practice the discipline of secrecy. Learn to enjoy a kind of intimacy with a father that so eclipses all other kinds of approval that you no longer need it or live for it. 
That's for those of you who have experienced God's grace. Now, for those of you who haven't, you've never responded to God's grace. Maybe it's because you were told by people that, you know, Christianity is all about behavior. And you didn't understand that it was about the human heart. Maybe it's because you saw, you know, bad examples of Christianity. Maybe you saw legalism and you were like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. You need to know that you haven't really understood Christianity until you understand that there are two ways to run from God. One is to disobey his rules. The other is to try to keep them. One is through depravity. One one way of running from God is through depravity, and the other is through moralism and religion. By trying to be good and doing it for the applause of other people. Both of those, whether you run from God by disobeying Him or whether you're trying to keep all of His rules, both of those leave the fundamental structure, the fundamental orientation of your heart the same, focused on you. One just looks better. One's more socially acceptable. But they're both the same. They're, you're both, they're both ways of running from God. Only the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ can transform your heart. And I would just want to say to you, if you're here today and you've never received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and his life and his death on the cross, his performance, his behavior, if you've never, if you've never received that, it's time to stop running from God by being moral. It's time to stop running from God by being good. It's time to accept that you too are a sinner and that the orientation of your heart is self-centered and that even all of your goodness is done for you and it's just external. It's time to stop running from God by being good. Would you bow your heads with me? If that's you, if you've been running from God by trying to be good and moral, if you've never understood that you are a sinner whose heart has been wrong and twisted by sin and you are consumed with self, if you've never understood that before, that your heart needs to change, today would be the day to acknowledge that, yes, indeed, I am a sinner. And Lord Jesus, today I want to put my faith in you. And you can do that right now in the privacy of your heart. If you, have, if you are a person who's experienced God's grace, but, but you find yourself at times, like we all do, can you just acknowledge that yeah, you struggle with this thing about religious applause too. Maybe right now, this very moment would be a good moment to make a kind of renewed commitment to practice the discipline of secrecy. To take stock of where perhaps you use your spirituality as a way of gaining applause for yourself and, and recommit yourself to practicing the discipline of secrecy and enjoying the intimacy of your Father, learning to enjoy that so much that it eclipses the applause of anyone else. 
We want to live right side up. And we can only do that when our hearts are changed internally. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for what you have done on the cross on our behalf. Thank you that the gospel is about you and your performance, not mine, because I could never behave well enough to have a relationship with a holy God. Thank you that you have done it. And thank you that because of what you have done, that I can be saved through faith in you. And then, and then as a result, my heart can be freed to love you and to love people, to be freed from the slavery to self. And Lord, make us a church that, that, we, are, that we are freed from the slavery of self and that we're freed to love people and to be committed to the well-being of everyone that we encounter, even those who are enemies, even those who would persecute us. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray these things.